Hello, and welcome back to the History of Egypt podcast, episode 147, Ankh Esen Amun. Today, we cover the traces of Egypt's queen, the wife of Tutankhamun. Famous, but shadowy, Ankh Esen Amun has left few records in archaeology or art. In this chapter, I explore what we know about the queen and her place in the royal court. This episode comes to you on behalf of Cynthia and Rebecca, who joined the Patreon as overseers for an entire year, which is amazing. Thanks to these fine folks, we can afford lotus flowers and sistrum rattles for the temples. Surely the great gods will be pleased with our offerings. Thank you for your support. To everyone listening, thank you for joining the show. I hope you enjoy this tale. The year was 1336 BCE, approximately. Tutankhamun, king of Egypt, had been the ruler for eight years. He had just completed the celebrations of Opet, the annual festival in honour of Amun-Ra. Now, the pharaoh and his household were sailing north, returning to their palaces at the city of Memphis. This episode is not about Tutankhamun, it is about someone else, the king's wife, the great queen of Egypt, her name was Ankh Esen Amun. Anuksun Amun. No, no, not quite. Ankh Esen Amun. Say it with me. Ankh Esen Amun. Anuksun Amun. Oh, come on! Ankh Esen Amun, or She Lives for Amun, was 22 years old, give or take. She was powerful, wealthy, and privileged. She had lived her entire life in the halls of royal power. Ankesen Amun had inherited authority from her mother, Nefertiti. Now, in her early twenties, she was the supreme woman of the two lands. Many people know the name Ankesen Amun thanks to the mummy films, but the lady herself is quite mysterious. Who was this person who inspired the names of movie characters? What do we know about the real Ankesen Amun? Well, sadly, not a lot. The girl who became Ankh Esen Amun was the third daughter of Nefertiti and King Akhenaten. She entered this world around regnal year five or six of that ruler, so she lived the first decade of her life in the court of Akhenaten. Then, when he died, she lived in the court of his successor, who might be Nefertiti as pharaoh. We have covered all those events previously, and Ankh Esen Amun has appeared many times in our story so far. Of course, when Akhenaten and his successor died, the young woman found herself at the forefront of politics. At the age of 14, maybe a bit older, she became the Hemet Nesut Weret, the king's great wife. Anke Senamun was older than her husband. Based on surviving evidence, she was probably five or so when young Tutankhamun was born. So there was an age gap between the queen and king. That might have been significant. Age can seem very important when you are young. It could have affected their relationship or their political positions. We don't know. Ankesen Amun is shadowy at best. The Queen of Egypt has left few records, and that leaves us with a gap in her story. At the very least, we can describe the titles she used as queen and some of the images related to her role. Ankesen Amun appeared before her subjects as an iripat, or hereditary noble. 
Basically, this means that she was born to high status, an aristocrat by birth. She also had titles like Weret Chesut, or Great of Praise, Benret Merut, or Sweet of Love, Nebet Imat, Lady of Charm, and Nebet Tawi, Ruling Lady of the Two Lands. Finally, she was the Hemet Nesut Merit F, the king's great wife, his beloved. And she was the Henut Shemau Mehu, the ruling lady of southern and northern Egypt. Basically, Ankes and Amun had all of the titles you would expect from a king's great wife. In fact, many of these titles are standard for 18th dynasty queens. Ankes and Amun had similar titles to her mother, Nefertiti, and her grandmother, the legendary T. So the young woman carried on a legacy established by her predecessors. But she was also different. Ankes and Amun never had the prominence of her mother or grandmother. Queens Nefertiti and T had been incredibly powerful figures in their time, but their authority and influence was short-lived. By comparison, Ankes and Amun was more traditional. That would be a feature of her public image throughout Tutankhamun's reign. To be fair, we do not know what the queen did in private. Behind the scenes, Ankes and Amun may have had more power. If she did, it does not survive in the art or texts, but that does not mean it wasn't there. Perhaps Ankes and Amun was more private or discreet than her predecessors. Maybe she had the power but did not flaunt it. That is possible. All we have are scattered images and references. Much of her story is missing. Fortunately, there is still art. Images of Ankes and Amun survive the millennia, and looking at them in context, we can get a sense of her public image. It is a formal, ceremonial image, but an image nonetheless. So here's what we know of her art. Let's start with the Festival of Opet. In the last episode, we explored the great celebrations in the southern city. Ankes and Amun participated in the Opet Festival, but the images and texts for that celebration only reference the queen a couple of times. In fact, we do not even see Ankes and Amun personally, or at least the surviving scenes do not preserve her figure. Nevertheless, we do see the queen's boat and get references to her participation. In the images that survive, Ankes and Amun's royal barge sails on the Nile. It appears during the procession to Luxor Temple and on the return journey. So we only get a hint of her presence and her role. She may have had an important job, but the surviving images don't show it. That hamstrings me a bit as I attempt to describe her function, but let's see what we can do. In the art, we find Ankes and Amun's ship plying the waters. It is a long vessel, with a crew of sailors manning the oars. The boat has a cabin amidships, which seems to be quite ornate. It is two stories tall, and features cobras, or uraei, as decoration. At either end, the queen's ship has a small shrine. It is a lovely craft. More importantly, Ankes and Amun's boat connected to another, the barge of the goddess Mut. In the images, we see Mut, the mother deity, sailing behind the ship of Ankes and Amun, and the queen's boat actually tows the barge of the goddess. A rope extends from Ankes and Amun's ship to that of the deity, so the queen took Mut on her journey. Above the ships, 
a line of hieroglyphs records the titles of Ankes and Amun, and we get a tiny speech from Mut herself. The goddess praises the queen, and she says, quote, The lady of praise, Ankes and Amun, rose the goddess Mut, the lady of the sky, in her beautiful festival of Opet. Mut rises in order to give her praise. End quote. Unfortunately, these texts are damaged and parts of it are lost, so it's not much to go on. But at the very least, we get a sense of Moot interacting with Angus and Amun. As far as I can tell, this is the only time in the Opet festival scenes that Angus and Amun appears by name, and the surviving blocks do not preserve any images of the queen herself. So, basically, we don't get much. What role did Ankes and Amun play in the Opet festival? Well, the surviving images and texts are silent about her job. That does not mean she was absent or that she did not participate. We simply do not have the record of what she may have done. For now, all we can say is she was there. Her ship sailed the Nile and towed the barge of Moot. Beyond that, Ankes and Amun's role is uncertain. She may have been a major participant, maybe not. For now, the surviving images preserve a tiny trace at best. So the Opet scenes are brief. From that, you might imagine that Ankes and Amun was a background figure, not prominent in the court. Well, maybe not. We do have other images of the queen in more noteworthy contexts. To round out this chapter, let's briefly describe her statues. Statues of Ankes and Amun are rare, but they do exist. I described one in episode 145, where the queen and king appeared at Karnak. Ankes and Amun and Tutankhamun stand in Karnak temple as the goddess Amunet and the god Amun. So we do have images of the queen in the great temple. The second major statue is in Cairo Museum. This is a massive piece, showing the king and queen together. The statue is broken in pieces, but museum workers have skillfully reconstructed the surviving parts. So in the halls of the old museum, you can still find the royal couple. The statue is enormous, much larger than life-size. We see Ankes and Amun and Tutankhamun seated side by side. This time, they appear as the god Amun and the goddess Mut. We will ignore Tutankhamun and focus on the queen. Ankes and Amun sits on her throne as Mut, the mother deity. She wears a long wig that hangs down over her shoulders and back. On her head, Ankes and Amun wears a crown associated with Mut. This is the red and white, or double crown. It represents the ruler of southern and northern Egypt. So we see Ankes and Amun in her role as a living goddess and a monarch of the two lands. The queen has a smooth face with prominent cheekbones. Her eyes are almond-shaped. Her eyebrows arch over the sockets. Her lips are wide with a sharp outline. The corners of her mouth turn up in a smile. The smile is subtle, giving her a slight Mona Lisa effect, if you will. Artistically, this statue fits within the late 18th dynasty. The image of Ankes and Amun is a direct descendant of those of her mother, grandmother, and predecessors. The Amarna period had created some changes in art, but by this point, the royal sculptors were going back to traditional imagery. So, Ankes and Amun looks a little bit like her mother, but at the same time, she has a distinctive appearance. The style is classic, 
and the Queen of Egypt is a traditional figure once again. As I said, this statue is enormous. Ankes and Amun towers overhead, which is appropriate for a goddess figure. The Queen of Egypt appears regal, formidable, and literally statuesque. By comparison, someone like Lady Dimitrescu seems tiny. So eat your heart out, internet. Those are the statues of Ankes and Amun. Combined with the tiny references in the Opet Festival, and her titles, we get a basic sense of the lady's public image. The king's great wife appeared in ceremonial contexts with her husband. Like Tutankhamun, she could take on the form and appearance of major deities. Ankes and Amun shows up as the goddesses Mut and Amunet. So we have some classic statues and ceremonial forms. In chapter 2, we go beyond the grand public imagery. We dive into some smaller objects from the tomb of King Tutankhamun. Objects from that burial preserve images of Ankes and Amun. Thanks to these items, we get traces of the queen and her relationship with Tutankhamun. They give a glimpse at the intimate connection of the royal couple. That is chapter 2, after the break. See you in a moment. Chapter 2. The deeds of Queen Ankes and Amun are poorly preserved. Many are lost, more are destroyed, and the images that survive often focus on her husband. Compared to King Tutankhamun, Ankes and Amun is more mysterious. When archaeologists opened the burial of Tutankhamun, they found many items that referenced the queen. The most famous of these is the king's golden throne. Here, we see the royal couple together beneath the light of the sun. They are enjoying a moment of relaxation with the Aten high above. It is a well-known picture, and I described this golden throne in episode 139. So, I will be brief and focus on the queen. We see Ankes and Amun standing before Tutankhamun. He relaxes on his throne, while she reaches out to anoint his collar with perfumes. The queen wears a long white dress and a tall crown. That crown takes the form of cow horns, with feathers and a sun disk between them. This is a powerful symbol for royal women of the late 18th dynasty. Ankes and Amun seems to be following the visual traditions of her predecessors, Nefertiti and Queen T. So the Golden Throne does not give us much information, but it does remind us of the connections between this queen and those who came before. Beyond the throne, our best image comes from a box. An ivory chest from the tomb shows the royal couple. This box is made of ivory and decorated with images of flowers and gardens. On the lid, we see Ankes and Amun presenting a bouquet to the king. The queen wears a small crown and a long wig. Her hair is black and thick, hanging down to the small of her back. Ankes and Amun wears jewels in her hair and a necklace over her shoulders. So we see her as a wealthy, privileged lady. She has all the status and comfort of her position. The queen wears a long flowing robe that hangs down to either side. It has a sash around her waist, like a belt. But the ends of the sash hang low, right down to her ankles. So the queen is clearly comfortable. Light, loose clothing 
suitable for sunny days and warm weather. The image itself is classic Amarna-style art. It emphasises pleasure, the garden, and flowers, and it presents the king and queen in luxurious costumes. It also focuses on relaxation, or a moment of intimacy between the royal couple. So, once again, we get a sense of Ankes and Amun, and her husband, as the heirs of Nefertiti, Queen Ti, Akhenaten, and Amunhotep III. The style of the box is slightly different, but the artists are clearly drawing on the same ideas. The little hints and details are there, for those who see them. The ivory box is quite lovely. Whoever made it did a fantastic job at picking out the tiny details and conveying the luxurious nature of the scene. Ankes and Amun and the king appear in wonderfully modelled details. It is a particularly beautiful image of this couple. As usual, there are images on the podcast website. Finally, the most significant artifact related to Ankes and Amun is a shrine. Within the tomb, a small golden shrine contained images of the queen and king. The item is about 50 centimeters tall and 32 centimeters deep, so it is tiny. The shrine is made of wood, covered with sheets of gold. And on that gold, an artist carved pictures of the queen and her husband. On this shrine, we see many different types of scenes. There are domestic scenes, ceremonial scenes, and scenes of hunting and relaxation. There are themes of pleasure in a physical and emotional sense. There are themes of support and ceremonial adoration. In other words, the shrine presents a variety of ideas about Ankes and Amun as the queen and her relationship to King Tutankhamun. Basically, the small golden shrine gives an ideal image of the royal couple. So, what do we actually see? The shrine has four sides. Each side is divided into panels, and each panel has a distinct image or vignette. These give us our scenes of the royal couple. I won't cover all of them, but here is a selection. On the front door of the shrine, we see Ankes and Amun offering praise to the king. She stands before Tutankhamun, raising her hands up before him. Ankes and Amun stands like a hieroglyph, a hieroglyph that we find in words for praise or glorifying the gods. In other words, the pose of the queen suggests that she is worshipping Tutankhamun as if he is a god, or as if she is a lowly subject of the king. So this image conveys a clear power gap between the lady and the man. At least, that's what we see in the first image. On another part of the door, we see Tutankhamun and Ankes and Amun walking together. They both face to the right, and they seem to be strolling. Ankes and Amun walks in front of the king, and she turns back to hold his arm. In this scene, the queen appears to be supporting Tutankhamun, assisting him as he walks. That is an interesting image. You may remember that Tutankhamun possibly suffered some problems with his feet. According to a few scholars, the king may have had a club foot, which can, but not always, be a detriment to mobility. In this image, we might be seeing the queen supporting the king physically, helping him to walk. At the same time, this image is probably symbolic. On the one hand, it could reflect Ankes and Amun's role as a wife. She supports the king physically, but also in a spiritual sense. She assists Tutankhamun in his role. Then, 
there is a political interpretation. As the king was young when he came to power, perhaps Ankesanamun helped him establish his authority. So maybe the scene of Ankesanamun supporting Tutankhamun is literal. Maybe it is symbolic. Maybe it is both. We can't say for sure, but it is interesting. Other images continue the theme of intimacy. In one scene, we find the king seated on his throne. Tutankhamun relaxes with an arm over the back of his chair, and he holds a large cup with a wide brim. This cup seems to be metal and quite ornamental. It has small lotus flowers and poppies sticking out of the top. Lotus flowers in particular are symbols of pleasure, perfume, and possibly mild drug effects. So the king is enjoying a break. Ankesanamun appears to assist him. While Tutankhamun relaxes on his throne, the queen comes before him. In one hand, she clutches a bunch of flowers, including lotuses and poppies. In the other hand, Ankesanamun holds a small cup, and she pours liquid from this cup into the king's massive drinking vessel. So, Ankesanamun brings a drink for her husband. Is it alcoholic, or something stronger? That is unclear, and you could probably read this a couple different ways. What's important is that the scene shows intimacy, sharing a drink, and relaxation, pleasure in the royal palace. Finally, we see the king sitting on a stool. Ankesanamun sits on the ground before him. The queen leans back, resting a hand on Tutankhamun's knee, and the king holds up a cup to pour a stream of liquid into the hand of his wife. So Ankesanamun sits beside her husband's lap, and he pours liquid into her hand. It is a curious image that may be unique among royal objects. The meaning is ambiguous, but it could easily relate to pleasure, relaxation, and good times. Or it could have an overt sexual symbolism. The connection between fluids and sexuality is quite strong in ancient Egyptian thought. So an image like this may convey, in a coded sense, some of the king and queen's relations. Again, the image is rather ambiguous, and the exact meaning is up for debate. But it's an interesting scene, and one that we do not find in other contexts. That is a brief description of the Golden Shrine and its pictures. If you want to see all of them, you will find images and reference links on the podcast website. So those are the images on the shrine. But what do they mean? And what was the purpose of this shrine? As we round out on this episode, I'd like to briefly touch on the significance of this piece. At a basic level, the Golden Shrine presents images of the Queen and King. They enjoy life together, and Ankesanamun attends to the needs of her husband. The shrine presents an idealized, formal image of the royal couple, and the queen is clearly the supportive figure, caring for Tutankhamun. But going past the literal meaning, what is the symbolism? Well, this is tricky. Many scholars have proposed different interpretations of the shrine. Long story short, there are a variety of ideas. In one view, the shrine may emphasize the husband and wife relationship of the royal couple. It may reinforce the expected roles that Ankesanamun and Tutankhamun would play. This touches on their positions as husband and wife, and their ranks as king and queen. So that is one idea. Other scholars interpret the shrine in more religious terms. 
One popular idea suggests that it connects with the ideas of resurrection. Apparently, the symbols on the shrine may help to guarantee that Tutankhamun will awake in the next life. Alternatively, some scholars connect the shrine with festivals and celebrations. Either way, these hypotheses have a religious or ceremonial angle. Fair enough, there are certainly elements of that in the art. I am not an expert in this type of symbolism, so I don't know who is correct, quote-unquote. So far, the husband and wife angle is the idea that I find the most convincing. The images on this shrine seem to emphasize daily life and rituals. They do not reference the afterlife, Osiris, or the language of resurrection. So I think the shrine focuses on Ankesenamun and Tutankhamun as husband and wife, queen and king. To be fair, there could be multiple functions. After all, a shrine could serve many purposes, depending on what you need. I still do not have a firm interpretation, but if I had to guess, the husband and wife symbolism seems like the strongest. For now. So that is a possible meaning in the imagery, but what is the shrine's purpose? The small golden shrine is probably supposed to hold a statue of Tutankhamun. He is the dominant figure in all of the imagery. The scenes show Ankesenamun making offerings to the king, so chances are the imagery gives us the clue. The shrine may have held a statue of the pharaoh. As for the functions, I would guess the shrine belonged to Ankesenamun herself. The images really emphasize the queen as a figure supporting or praising Tutankhamun, so there's a good chance it belonged to her personally. Maybe she could use this shrine to invigorate Tutankhamun's power. The shrine is small and easy to carry, so perhaps Ankesenamun took it with her when she was traveling. If the queen had to go away from the king, this shrine may have been a way of maintaining their magical bond. Using the shrine and its statue, Ankesenamun could attend to the king, like a priestess for a god. That is speculation, but you get my point. The shrine probably had a statue of Tutankhamun, and overall, this item may have belonged to the queen. If that is accurate, then we may have a sense of its purpose. Perhaps Ankesenamun used this shrine and the statue to support her husband's spirit, give him energy with offerings and music. We cannot be sure, but that might be a reasonable interpretation. This small item is still a challenge for scholars but it may be our best image of the royal couple's relationship. Considering how little we know of Ankesenamun as a person, this shrine gives us one of the best clues. It is not perfect, and the imagery is layered with Egyptian perspectives of gender and marriage. Nevertheless, it is a valuable record for the queen. The small golden shrine from the tomb of Tutankhamun is a lovely item, I will come back to it in another episode to discuss some images related to hunting. For now, let us bring this chapter to its end. By regnal year 8, Queen Ankesenamun was approximately 22 years old. She was physically mature, politically established, and part of the royal household. Her personality and role are mysterious. Artistic images present the queen as a stereotypical wife, quote-unquote. 
she supports her husband and attends to his needs. Beyond that, Anke Senamun's political and personal power is hard to see. Texts for Anke Senamun are rare. We get tiny phrases on objects and temples, but nothing substantial. Nothing that really gives us sense of her as a person. And that is a shame. After 3,000 years, Anke Senamun has disappeared into history. Today, we have only shadowy ideas of her role. There are other stories related to this queen that I will discuss at the appropriate time. For now, what we know for sure is that Anke Senamun is a mysterious figure. Compared to her predecessors, Queen T and Nefertiti, the young queen seems to be a background figure for her husband. That raises some complicated questions about politics and ideas. Was the job of queen changing in response to those powerful ladies? Did Anke Senamun fill a secondary or supportive role for the king? Or do the images present a skewed idea? Did Anke Senamun have more influence than it seems? At the moment, these questions are impossible to answer. Perhaps future excavations or research will give more information. One day, we may have a much better idea of Ankh Esen Amun. Next time, we dive deeper into the life that Ankh Esen Amun and Tutankhamun shared. We get a sense of the king's physical experiences by looking at his mummy. And we touch on the subject of children. Ankh Esen Amun and Tutankhamun may have tried for offspring. From the king's tomb, we get a hint of the results. That is next time, in episode 148, The Life of Tutankhamun. Thank you for listening to the History of Egypt podcast. The music for this episode was by Keith Zizzer and Ancient Lyric, with interlude sounds by Luke Chaos. My thanks to these fine musicians. They have generously donated their songs for me to use, and I am most grateful. Follow the links in the episode description to learn more about these artists. My thanks to Linda, Terry, TJ, Jason, Kendra, Evan, and Kyla. They generously support the show as priests on Patreon.com. Thanks to their generosity, I can enjoy delicious drinks that keep me alert and happy. And I can afford gifts for my fiancé. So my thanks to Terry, Linda, TJ, Jason, Kendra, Evan, and Kyla. You are too generous, and I am in your debt. To everyone listening to the show... Thank you very much for joining me. I hope you've enjoyed this story, and I will see you soon. Take care, and may the lotus flower bring perfume to your house. May your loved ones make offerings at your shrine. The History of Egypt podcast is a member of the Agora Podcast Network. Visit agorapodcastnetwork.com to see more shows from my colleagues. Also, you can find reference material and images for today's episode at egyptianhistorypodcast.com. And you can support the show at patreon.com slash egyptpodcast. Thank you for listening. On to the next chapter. Golden Treasures of King Tutankhamun show the great royal wife attending to the pharaoh. Ankesen Amun appears in art, anointing the king with oils and perfumes. Together, 
the young rulers may have enjoyed luxurious skincare routines and a sweet, pleasant scent. Today, you can enjoy the same thanks to Ra Egyptian Skincare. The History of Egypt podcast endorses Ra Egyptian for its ethically sourced and high quality ingredients. With their products, you can enjoy a beautiful routine in the morning and eve. Whether you are anointing yourself or a partner, your skincare could be as lovely as the pharaohs. Follow the link in the episode description or visit ra-egyptian.com. Then use your code EGYPT at the checkout to enjoy 30% off your order. 30%! Wow! Once again, visit ra-egyptian.com and use the code EGYPT at checkout. Cleanse and smell like Ankh Esen Amun. <laughs>